Welcome to Retaining the Passion, Journeys Through Nursing. This is a non-affiliated podcast. Any views expressed by the hosts or guests do not necessarily represent those of the organizations they work for or are studying at, or any trade unions or professional bodies they are members of. Thanks for listening. Hi, Craig. Nice to be speaking to you again. And you. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's been a busy, busy week for me, but it's nice to get some time to sit down with you and our guests and reflect on what we've been doing. So it is. And I'm jealous you get to go to the pub. We do get to go to the pub. I'm going, I mean, it's rare even outside of COVID that my husband and I go for a drink, but we've decided that tonight's the night we're going to wander down and support our local pub and have some time outside of this house just for an hour. Very good. I think it's very, very much needed. And I've got a week's annual leave off in between jobs. So I finished my job last week in the infectious diseases department at the Queen Elizabeth. And I'm moving on to my new role next Monday. So I'm starting at the Asylum Health Bridging Team in Glasgow City Health and Social Care Partnership so I absolutely can't wait I am a nervous wreck but super excited it is super exciting tears to leave but excited to start and that's the way it should be yeah I'll miss my team but I'll go back and do bank shifts there but I'm so so looking forward to joining this team and I know it will be it's going to be like being a brand new registered nurse all over again because yeah, it's, it's totally so different. different and there'll be so much to learn. But what I can't wait for is to work alongside mental health nurses. It'll be really nice to have that other level of expertise in a team, particularly because yeah. a lot of the people we work with are going to have experienced such trauma. I just can't wait yeah. for the learning that I'll get from them. Yeah, definitely. And I think working in multidisciplinary teams is really important. And obviously, you know, some very lovely mental health nurses. They're all right. The mental health (laughs) nurses, I know, I suppose they're all right. Oh, so this fortnight's episode, (laughs) this fortnight's episode is one we've been discussing for a while and we've talked about COVID-19 basically since the inception of this podcast in series one, because we both registered and began working during COVID-19. But the very specific focus of this episode is COVID-19, the effect on nursing. And we're very lucky because we have three very exciting guests on to speak with us. We know them all personally. Well, I know the first of our speakers, as do you, and you have worked with the other two. So if you can introduce our speakers. I will. So first we spoke to Catherine Gamble, who is a head nurse and she used to be the mental health professional lead for the RCN so we both know her and we were excited to talk to her and then we spoke to Vicky Farnsworth who is a registered mental health nurse and used to work on my team and Claire Jones who is a consultant clinical psychologist and both of them work for my trust but they're seconded to a fantastic service called the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub which is quite unique and has quite an extraordinary beginning I think a sad extraordinary beginning um, that they spoke to us about and how they've used their learning and experience to support people during COVID-19 so it was a great to chat with both of them lots of similar themes but I think really useful to all our listeners so we'll start with Catherine. 
So Claire and I are very excited to be joined by a guest that we have known for quite a while. So it's going to be great to speak with her. So we have Catherine Gamble with us, who is a registered mental health nurse and is head of nursing education and research. So thank you for joining us today, Catherine. Lovely to join you. Hi. So how we like to start every interview, Catherine, is just by asking you to tell us a little bit about your story, how you got into nursing, how you've got to where you are in your profession now. You can be as open as you like, but obviously just feel free to keep it to information that you wouldn't want the whole world known. (laughs) That's a a good idea. (laughs) I was very privileged to actually provide my synopsis of how I got into nursing for the NMC as part of their celebration of the International Year of the Nurse. I submitted my experiences and they called me up and said, oh, actually, we'd quite like you to feature. So I'm now featured on their website. That's Um, very exciting. Yeah, so it's quite exciting. And I didn't expect them to, but I suppose I have got a bit of a unique story. I didn't want to be a nurse. I didn't think it was for me. I started out as a general nurse, mainly because I didn't actually know about mental health nursing. And I think that's still relevant today. I was very mindful of going into nursing that I had a very significant role model in my godmother, My godmother was head of labour relations for the Royal College of Nursing as I grew up. And she actually before that lived in Bermuda and managed all the surgical wards and all the surgical theatres, more likely, in Bermuda. And and I thought it was marvellous. And just as I got old enough to go and see her, because I thought it would be highly glamorous to (laughs) meet my very glamorous godmother in Bermuda, my mum sort of and her had got together and thought that she ought to be coming home and she applied to uh, get a job and she got it at the RCN and was the person who set up the first sort of steward training for for nurses. Yes, so I'm very proud to have come through that heritage. And uniquely, Tom Bolger, who plays a role now, interviewed me for my nursing career at Derbyshire Royal Infirmary. And later years, I realised that he'd actually been on one of Val's first steward trainings. And so that was a link that I'd never really made anything of other than the fact that I kept it a very small secret. But I used to open my RCN diary that they used to produce for members. And in the back of it was my godmother. And so in some ways, I would just be glowingly thinking of the aspiration of her. So there was that influence. But it was also my mother, who is a social worker background, and she was very pivotal in helping me understand the value of social systems and the importance of social systems. So I did a lot of voluntary work as a teenager who actually went through a bit of a bad time. I had dyslexia. I was not really particularly fitting in. And uh, and then at a pivotal time, I went through a car windscreen. And I didn't think it particularly important at the time, but I was Nobody offered me any counselling, nobody offered it. My friends did lots of lovely things to me, but I had facial surgery. I went through that process and it was when I sort of came round and sort of thought, well, what do I want to do? 
I ended up sort of saying, all right, I'll go for that interview for a nurse, general nursing interview, and went <laughs> reluctantly, determined that I wouldn't get on. So I wore the most outrageous. I've still got a photograph of the purple boots I wore and the um, outfit that I wore to ensure that uh, nobody would take me on. And they asked me why I was good quality and why I thought I would be good at nursing. And that was Tom Bolger's one of his questions because he interviewed me. And I remember saying, well, I've worked at Marks and Spencer's and I worked on the food departments. And if people were miserable by Marks and Spencer's food, then I thought I'd got all the qualities to deal with the um, unhappiness <laughs> of people. Because if people were still unhappy buying food in Marks and Spencer's, then I felt I had the qualities. Thinking again, I wouldn't get on. But I did. And they accepted me. And I obviously came into nursing with an idea that I would go and travel the world. I thought that I would travel in nursing, but I would also think that was something that I would get off and I wouldn't stay in. I'd do the training because I'm obviously a bit wayward and agreed with my family that I would do this, but I never expected to stay I worked as once qualified in an accident and emergency department and was heavily influenced by my complete lack of really good interpersonal skills, which influenced me to consider doing my mental health nursing. And that's where I ended up finding my niche and really valued that time. And I really valued actually being doubly qualified. And now, you know, all these years later, really in with the parative esteem agenda, very mindful that I haven't kept myself up to date. And that's why I'm passionate about the RCN's campaign around parative esteem, because we do have a responsibility to maintain our up to date skills in both arenas. Do you still hold dual registration, Catherine? I do indeed, yeah. So I'm good in an accident. I've just only about a couple of years ago, there was a very, very serious incident that I drove literally sort of only about two or three minutes after it had happened. And we just happened to be in the right place at the right time with some very elderly people who had been run over by a van. And we were very much involved in this and we began resuscitation. And to my absolute amazement, as we started this resuscitation, these four or five people that were around on this busy main road, we all sort of started to exchange as we were sort of saying what our skills were in this emergency situation. One said, well, I'm a cardiac nurse. I said, pardon, somebody said, I've just got first aid and I am a first class first aider. I've just done the course. And there was somebody else who said, well, I'm a retired GP nurse. And there was me. And when the ambulance turned up, to my absolute amazement, they were all said, how on earth did you manage to get all (laughs) so many really experienced Oh, all at the same time. I have no idea. I'll do it there. Yeah, really serendipity. So I think that really brought home to me the value of the nursing family, of what we bring to the table. And I was very mindful that after that, I was really very shaken. It, It was a really very powerful incident. And I was very mindful that because I'm a mental health nurse, I was in a very strong position to say I need psychological support. 
And, and I think that's something that we're not particularly good at. And through becoming a mental health nurse, I'm far more aware of the value and the importance of expressing our vulnerability, particularly at this time as post-COVID. So I've had a very, very varied career. And when I just go back to thinking around what happened to me and where I came from. I was particularly interested, as I said, from my mother's interest in systems and families, that I happened to be in the right place at the right time to be reading about the work around the expressed emotion work that in 1985, Professor Julian Leff was talking about and developing and doing a lot more research into that. And I applied to work at the Maudsley after qualifying in Manchester. And absolutely, to my amazement, the man who was the consultant on the ward I'd applied for, unbeknownst to me, was Professor Julian Leff. (laughs) Yes, who turned out to be a real professional father for me in that saw attributes in me. And I went on through his invitations and through his experience to train nurses in family intervention. He saw, as I said, skills in me that I didn't realise I had. But I then went on, we developed courses that went all over the country. I was then fascinated by writing up what I was doing and was in a situation where I was then started through his networks and my own generation of networks to train people all over not only this country but in other parts of the world. So I've trained in Australia, I've worked with families across Europe, I've worked in Scandinavia and I've also done some symposiums and conferences in all sorts of parts of the world and in America. So I was very, very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time but also having my colleagues who actually weren't nurses giving me a lot of help and support to generate and become an expert in an area that I'm absolutely passionate about and have still remained so since I started. You know, families that I can tap into and their expertise and their understanding of how to work with people with serious mental illness has taught me to be a much better mental health nurse. Yeah. Oh, it makes me so excited. (laughs) Families is where I want to end up working, but that's a whole other story. But yeah, your career infuses me, definitely. Brilliant. Well, I'm Um, I'm glad. You've touched on COVID already, and I suppose we wanted to ask you specifically, you're head of nursing at a London Trust. What impact do you think COVID-19's had on your workforce? Well, first and foremost, I think going back to when the lockdown was originally announced going in to I lead a nursing development team they're a very wonderful bunch of people and I walked in and the director of nursing had just met with them to tell them about what we were going to be doing and what that might look like and I was a few moments late and I walked into the team and Everybody sort of said, all right, thank you to the director of nursing. And she said, well, you know, we've mapped it all out, Kath. This is what's going to happen. Fine, this, that, and the other. Sat around and looked at everybody. And we didn't really say very much. And then one of the older members of the team said, I'm absolutely terrified. Yeah. I'm absolutely terrified. And I said, thank God somebody has said it. Mm. And it helped us to really then start going around the room and saying, what does this really mean? 
am I going to be able to touch anybody again? What am I, you know, a couple of my BME nursing colleagues in the team sort of said, you know, this is really profound. And at the time, we didn't realise just how profound it would be for the BME community. And I think that was the bit that really struck me. And I was also at the time working as the professional lead for the RCN. So I had been seconded there doing three days a week. And I went through a Herculean learning curve. I had absolutely no idea what PPE meant. I had no idea what donning and doffing and God, the word, what, what's all this? <laughs> and my, you know, infection control professional lead colleagues and public health colleagues Honestly, I was so impressed with them. They went into overdrive. They taught me. I suddenly had everything coming through my computer. I had no friends or colleagues around me. I was just in my living room. And the tension that I felt was unbelievable. But watching how they managed and how very quickly they were producing guidance and very quickly I was able to use that large network from not only here in locally but also nationally and internationally I was able to say what's this who are these people and suddenly I've got a whole wealth of people coming to me saying we'll help you with guidelines of what, what needs to go in about the inpatient units this is this we need to know about PPE I've got NAPIQ, which is the National Institute of Psychiatric Care Units, getting in contact with me saying, you know, we've got to look at this far more closely. What's Public Health England doing about providing some advice on where mental health nurses sit within all this? And it wasn't coming and it wasn't coming and it wasn't coming. And I think that was the point where I was just really aware of how vulnerable we were as mental health nurses because we were so neglected in our understanding of infection yeah. control and also that nobody really even ever thought about how do we work with people who some of them had already started to feel that they were responsible for the world collapsing and psychosis was suddenly very astute and yet here we were Turning on sixpences, and sorry, an old term, but you know, literally the coin is so small, but there we were very quickly turning around and starting to develop services, starting to talk about how we might be more flexible and what we would be providing, and seeing my mental health nurse colleagues just really coming together very, very powerfully and really supporting each other in a way that I just felt very humbled by. I was, um, But I do remember there was one particular occasion when I was so overwhelmed by everybody sort of like, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? All these things coming through an email. Do you know what I did? I decided that I was so tired that I ran onto the sofa, put myself under a blanket for about 20 minutes, burst into tears, thought, Oh, God, I think I'll just have a sleep. So uh, 20 minutes later, I woke up. I thought, that's better. I'm better now. I can get on with it. But I did give myself permission to have that moment where I just thought, oh, God, this is overwhelming. It's, it's so nice to hear that, though. It's so nice to hear because... Craig and I both started as nurses at the beginning of the pandemic and course, I'm obviously a yes. mental health nurse in the yeah. community yeah. 
And when you talk about fear, for me, we haven't talked about that enough as nurses. We've talked about being overwhelmed and emotional, but we haven't talked as much about the fear, certainly not in the public arena. And for me, that feeling of, like you say, because I'm based in the community, being based at home and feeling isolated, but still having to give a service and wanting to give a service to these patients who were really, like you say, struggling and, and their mental health was deteriorating. So for me, I don't know how Craig feels, but it, it's really comforting to think, well, at the same time, I might have been diving under a blanket on my sofa. Somebody else was doing <laughs> that. And actually, that's part, of the, yeah, that's part of that development. And that has brought nursing together, hasn't it? Yeah. And I think that fear you talk about, I felt that acutely. I worked in an infectious diseases ward which very quickly became the coronavirus hub. So that is what was my baptism of fire as a new registrant was what I was dealing with. And there were physical health nurses also that were fearful. We Mm. didn't know what the PPE guidance was. Mm. Any guidance Mm. we were following was changing not only monthly and weekly, but daily. Mm. I had colleagues who had been experienced nurses working for years who were fearful Mm. for their lives and for their families. Certainly as a newly registered nurse, I was fearful about was I going to bring this home to my other half? Was Mm. I going to get it? A lot of my colleagues have had COVID. Mm. They've then had members of their family with it. And I think what I felt most fearful for being in a ward-based environment, subsequently I have to start a new job on Monday, but I have worked in that department for 11 months. And it was the fear of not being able to provide the standard of care that I knew that I had been able to when I'd been a student nurse. So we weren't able to have families come to the wards to see these patients because there was a lot of patients who became palliative and died and lost their lives to COVID and not been able to really properly hold someone's hand because you were through so much PPE, Mm. not been able to see our faces properly because we were under visors and masks. And I would go home and like you say, curl up on that sofa and cry. I would go home and and cry. I have cried so many tears and Claire will know as she's one of my confidants over the last 11 months. I find it really difficult. And that's one thing I'm sure we'll get into as this interview Mm. progresses but I think the pandemic Mm. that we will subsequently have to deal with is the emotional fallout and burnout for nurses in all fields once the pandemic has settled down and once that adrenaline has run out so continuing from that Kath Mm -hmm. do you think that COVID-19 will have a long-lasting impact on nursing, both here in the UK, but globally as well? And if so, do you think this is all negative or do you think there are some positives we can take from it? bit of both, Craig. I think for me, what's so poignant about this, that it happened in the International Year of the Nurse. I know. And how significant that will be will only turn out in time, as you say, on the impact on us individually as a profession, nationally, internationally. But I I do remember when I was just talking about being in a privileged position to go to a conference in Vancouver that was the International Congress of Nurses event and going to the opening ceremony 
and being incredibly moved. The opening ceremony was like the Olympic ceremony. They sort of walked in, every nurse from every part of the world walked in holding their flag and or wearing their traditional costume. Slightly concerned that our UK nurses really have very much in the way of something to wear, apart from the Scottish and the, the Scottish have their kilts on and obviously that, but I was oh, very... Yes, of course. Very good trust. Yes, had to say that because of the representation. But I think that struck me then, just the power of what an amazing, unique body of people we are and just how many there are of us and how we all hold the values. I think it will be unifying. There's a unification in this. I do think there's something about how we look after each other. I know that we really do need to do a lot more around how we celebrate who we are as nurses. I've found far too many. I'm very proud of how many nurses I've been able to help along the way in their career. But I've also been very unsettled by some of the attitudes and beliefs that some nurses hold about each other. We're not as inclusive as we should be. And we sometimes can be very unkind. Yeah, I've never known a profession like nursing to go after each other quite so much. I've never seen it in any other profession. No. And also we do it so publicly and it's quite unnecessary and unfair. And I think that for me, that's the most important bit, that I think our leaders and our own ability to lead and to say no that doesn't happen around here is so important and as we go back to theoretical normal functioning it's to return to those values as well because I think when you're in the height of a crisis you're very involved and everybody is really pulling together that suddenly as that comes back into a more normal situation all systems can't necessarily go back to the way they were and I really sincerely hope they don't but in order to be able to do that I think as nurses we need to attain to each other that doesn't happen around here we know there's institutional racism we know there's institutional bullying and harassment no that doesn't happen around here and I think we have a responsibility as an individual and as a a population of nurses to say no that doesn't happen under my name And, and I hope that that's what COVID has helped us do and a great leveller. I do know that one of my colleagues at the RCN was very powerful when she talked about she'd been in the military and when we were talking about all the the hospitals the hospitals opening god what's the name of them? the nightingale hospitals thank you <laughs> forget that old woman <laughs> i would much rather <laughs> but let's not go there no no thing that the point was that she said don't underestimate she opened military hospitals she'd seen things you know people who've been through the ebola crisis said, you know, we don't know the real impact and we won't necessarily, as a nation, understand what that impact has been until maybe the next generation. 
and what we will be holding up. So I do, I've got great hope and optimism. That's my role as a mental health nurse. I provide hope and optimism. And I've seen some super interventions and some super people doing some fantastic work. But that's what I think we've got to be able to work out when we move forward, just what we need to do around supporting each other. What I just really worry about is going into this pandemic. Sorry, Claire. What I just really worry about is going into this pandemic, we had nurse vacancies in England alone of 400,000. The World Health Organization's State of the World nursing report showed there was 900 million vacancies across the globe. We know that retention of early career nurses is a big problem. And I worry that we're going to see a mass exodus. So I'm just like, what are we going to do to stop that? This is why I feel... And it's so great having you on, Kath, because I think regardless of what field of nursing that we're in, protecting the mental health of nurses of any field is going to be so important. Absolutely. And I have to say, I hold the government to account. Absolutely appalling decisions were made and we have to go back to Andrew Lumsley and all that period since fundamentally stupid decisions around actually taking nursing and nurses for granted. And I was very clear when talking about this, I hold our nurse leaders at the moment really responsible for getting behind this and saying, actually, this is not. I think that whilst we were doing a big campaign about paying nurses more, there was a number of other really key issues around not just paying us more but looking at our continuing professional development supporting our welfare all those things perhaps there were different really important things to lobby just at the same time yeah and I think that for me you're absolutely right there are too many elements that we missed out on and I think that that's the bit that choose your battles carefully but I think that by putting all our eggs into one basket we missed a significant message over a really significant period in our history as a UK wide activity because we were so busy focusing on paying us more we forgot to say actually you've got to look after us yeah I think that's fair Yeah. I mean, I think certainly for me, having just started this part of my life's journey and my career, my life as a nurse is richer for knowing such a diverse range of professionals from different fields of nursing, from different areas of the country. And I hope that we learn that we are stronger together because together we can look at each other and support each other and move forwards. And Craig's touched on the next pandemic being potentially mental health and you and I are both mental health nurses and I think we've got to think about what that's going to look like so I suppose our next question to you is how will COVID-19 do you think impact mental health services in the short and long term I suppose for existing patients but for all those people who maybe will become patients as a result of COVID-19. Well, I think the more that particularly mental health nurses get on board with the understanding of co-producing services, the more we can embrace people with lived experience and to support them to help us co-produce the answers 
I'd see mental health nurses being pivotal in helping and introducing and facilitating people coming into the arena and actually having that. I think we could make a really significant difference at the heart of every mental health nurse's practice is really co-production. We can't make a decision without other people around. And I think that will help tremendously to consider the agenda that is coming because we will not be able to do this unless we have whole communities involving and being involved in the solutions. I mean, for a very classic example, I mean, yesterday had the privilege of being in an event that we ran about the parity of esteem with Roehampton University because they are just using that as a launch of their parity of esteem pre-reg programme so that there will be equal mental health and physical health working alongside each other. There was somebody in one of the workshops that I talked about to saying that she herself as a an aspirant nurse was very concerned that her son was very unwell and how isolated she felt And I was saying in that workshop that we have a responsibility to introduce people to other people to actually ensure that this is the way stigma happens because we all go into our little places and we don't say. And I think we have a role and a responsibility to introduce people to peer support. We know the peer support worker evidence is now suggesting that families meet other families who have gone further along the recovery journey. We know it has an impact. We know if people with lived experience meet other people who've got lived experience, it's terribly reassuring. And it's also provides some some really clear roadmaps. So I do think there are different ways in which we can consider making and providing the solutions. Interesting, I was just talking earlier on about social media, but on social media, the University of Melbourne talking about re-looking at how they will shape their services post-COVID and what to address the loneliness, and they are doing it in a co-produced way. Now, I think that here we're doing it so piecemeal. We've got the odd person involved but we are very good at saying, oh, let's be revolutionary, but ultimately putting back everything we know once we've gone through that process. So I would suggest there's something really important about giving people the opportunity to say what this needs to look like with far too much emphasis on crisis and on waiting and waiting and waiting for the crisis and we don't have enough patients being admitted informally we have the worst record uh, for BME experience which, you know in the mental health act review we've used the mental health act more and there's more people held under the mental health act than at any other time in its history and I think we've got to look at that. We've got to become better at reinstating the value of an informal admission. And you two are both in a situation <laughs> where you can make that difference. But it's also that to my Claire, you've been brought up to work on locked wards. I haven't. Yeah. All my inpatient experience was on open wards. And if we ever, ever locked our ward, we had to be really inspected. 
by our own peers from another ward to ask us why we'd done it and what strategy we were using to get out. And if it was held for more than 48, 36 hours, we were really in dire straits. But now, generally, there is a sense that every ward is locked and people have made the assumption that's for security. No, it's breaching human rights. And we need to look at that. And that's where I think if we can start to consider the informal patient and the way that we treat informal patients, we could make such a significant difference. But that's what's going to have to come in order to make sure that we've got services that really respond to people who will say, there's a difference from feeling peculiar and then saying, well, no, actually, you can't come in. You have to wait till you're really, really sick. And then we ultimately change the whole way people function and live for many many years to come I find that so interesting hearing you talk about that Kath about the locked wards because I have been very open about this I had lived experience of mental health and I was an inpatient in a locked ward Mm. in 2015 and it was based on my lived experience of that dehumanization and what I perceived to be the robbing of my human rights Mm. that led me to become a nurse. Mm. I chose not to become a mental health nurse because I felt like it was very close to my own personal experience, which is why I went into adult nursing. I would have, however, done dual field, but in Scotland, that's not something we offer. But I think you're very right in what you're saying there that I do think that has the potential to infringe upon human rights. We used the Mental Health Act to frighten people sometimes it's a profession we say have never said this myself but we hear it all the time if you don't take this medication engage in this therapeutic activity which by definition isn't therapeutic you're making someone do it then you will be sectioned it's unlawful in, in, in exactly but it happens we can't pretend it doesn't happen mm. because it does and people who are informal on wards and like you say a few and far between are still behind two locked doors and mm. there's an airlock yeah. and and how is that informal when yeah. they have to be let out by a member of staff so yeah. I could talk to you about that for a very 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 long time but I'll, I'll let Craig move on because yeah. otherwise we'll be here all day. There was just a really quick question I wanted to ask you before we tie it up just because I think it's really pertinent for what the theme of this episode is Kath. If there are nurses out there or nursing students or any of our listeners who have had a real impact on their own mental health by working during COVID, what would your advice for them be? Talk about it, share it, don't be alone with it. Interestingly, uh, I know that lots of people are against social media, but I know that a lot of support can be gained. And we know that already people have been picked up by saying on Twitter, for example, I feel vulnerable. I wouldn't have normally thought that this would be a great place to start. But I think it's a place that you can be in aimless and faces, but the opportunity to network also use the resources that where you are working use family and friends but also now more of the trusts have a health and well-being they are recognizing the importance of this so utilizing those skills I think we are our own worst enemies we go on and on and on and on like little hamsters on wheels so I think there's something about saying it's all right to get off And even if you're feeling that pressure, 
for us all to say it's all right to get off. I mean, even this week, I have asked two members of staff, I said, no, can you put your hand on your heart really genuinely and tell me if you're well enough to be here? And because sometimes we get into that role so much that we don't really recognise ourselves when we're vulnerable and when we're not well ourselves. So I think there's something about being honest, talking about it, and sharing and saying it's okay. And I know that some of your listeners will be thinking, well, that's very well and good. I've tried that and it hasn't worked. But I think you know who your allies are and find them again, put them in your lifeboat and keep them in your lifeboat. Consider what your lifeboat looks like. The other thing I would just say, and I'd ask when I do the sessions about supervision, I ask people to do a little diagram of themselves a bit of sense checking it so I'd ask them to draw a little diagram of themselves in the middle and then I want to ask them to put arrows indicating who they're supporting put arrows out you know patients families and providing that support so every arrow going out you then think well where's my support coming from and one of the ways to sense check it if there are more arrows going out than there are coming in, then you need to think, what can I do about that? Likewise, if there's so many arrows coming in and thinking to yourself, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Thank you. You have kind of answered our last question that we ask all our interviewees, which is if you have any piece of advice. And I think that sense checking is a perfect piece of advice and is certainly something I will do. If anyone (laughs) wants to follow you on social media, Kath, where's the best place to follow you? Well, I have quite small feet. Everybody who meets me comments, so I am actually mini feet too. And that's number two. Yeah. 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 So I fully suggest that you all follow Kath on social media and a wonderful person. And thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's such a pleasure. And it's so lovely to have you two in the profession, I have to say. And I I do follow you both and get great pride when I see you saying what you're doing. And by the way, I do like Harvard referencing more than others. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I might be old school, but I like Harvard referencing. Oh, well, Harvard referencing was what I was brought up with at GCU but now I'm trying to turn my dissertation into a paper and they want APA oh yes now I I did a chapter for somebody who will remain nameless who at the 11th hour before it was published and I'd got I'd done it signed it all off and I'd done it they came back to know all the referencing's wrong well fortunately that person is still alive but (laughs) 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 oh it's so nice to talk to you Listen, I hope our paths will cross again very soon. And what a privilege to be asked I know. to be involved in this. Thank you so much, oh, you two. thank you. Oh, thank you. I, I think you might know my auntie, Kath. Do you With know somebody type? called Hilary Howell? Yeah, well, yes, I she's do. Very, that's my auntie. Yeah, she's a Dr. Howell. She's our only doctor. I've got a massive family. So Hillary, I just when you were talking then about family intervention and who you'd work with, I was like, she must know Hillary. Yes, she's my auntie. She works specifically around family intervention and autism, doesn't she? So yeah, yeah, that's my auntie. Oh my goodness, what a small world. It is and honestly, I applied to do some family intervention training and then they decided up here that they had to have four people from a specific area and stop what any had me wanting to do 
it. So I'm weighing up what I'm going to do next. And it's interesting you talk about public health because I'm considering health visiting because I, like you, find it very frustrating that we wait till somebody's in absolute dire crisis. I mean, Craig knows I'm struggling with that massively at the moment. All these people who need housing or you can see what they need and you can see exactly how they've got to where they are. But to get a care coordinator in the CMHT, it's not good enough feeling suicidal. You actually have to have attempted to end your life four, five, six times. And then they come to me and I'm responsible for them at the end of a phone during COVID, it's just impossible. Yes. Well, so I'm I share your early intervention. So, yeah, so I apologise. I have to yes, go. you it's go. Been working no, no, go. Thank you both so much. A real privilege. See you bye. soon. Bye. Yeah, bye. Bye. I'm very excited. We've got two guests joining us on our next interview. And it's Vicky Farnsworth, who's a mental health nurse, and Claire Jones, who's a consultant clinical psychologist. And they both work on the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub. So welcome, Vicky and Claire. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining Hi. us. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having us. So Vicky, we're going to start a question with you, if that's okay. So we ask this of all the nurses that come on. So in your own way, tell us the story of how you got into nursing and to where you are now. Don't share anything that you wouldn't want the whole world to know, obviously, but as much or as little as you'd like to let our listeners know about your journey. Oh, right. Okay. So I started my adult nurse training when I was 17 back in the day when you could start nurse training when you were 17. But for personal reasons, I didn't complete that. But shortly after that, missed nursing dreadfully. And I'd always had a love and a hope to go into mental health nursing. So I started on Project 2000 nurse training and qualified in 1994. And since then, I've worked in the South Manchester area on various wards, PICUs, acute admission, alcohol treatment, before going into community mental health, which I have done for 23 years. Before moving on to working with the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub, which is where my post currently is on secondment, full-time to offer support with healthcare and care staff through this pandemic period. So you both work at the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub. Can you tell us how that came into being and what role it fulfills at present? Okay, so I'm going to defer to Claire to start with a little bit of the backstory of how we came into being. Sure. So the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub was set up nearly four years ago now. So on the 22nd of May 2017, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, the Manchester Arena attack happened. Yeah. At that time, I was working in a CAMS service in Manchester, probably the CAMS service that's located closest to where the bomb was detonated in the arena. So I was working in a CAM service there with nurses, psychiatrists, other clinical psychologists. And I think it was very clear early on that Manchester felt they wanted to do something different to support people. This was the most extraordinary attack that had happened when children, young people and adults were going to a place of joy in Manchester, which is so known for its music. Yeah. And this terrible atrocity happened. 
And I think we wanted to try and set up a different kind of service from standard mental health services. It felt like we needed to do something extraordinary to support people who've been affected by this absolutely extraordinary event. So we set up the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub as it is now. And it was set up on this kind of a, Vicky said that she seconded, it's a kind of secondment model. So we have mental health specialists, psychological therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists who all work in either adult or child specialties who came together to provide a kind of outreach and screening model. For the NHS, it was pretty impressive. So within six weeks after the arena attack, we had premises, we had infrastructure, and we had staff who were in post. And we've been kind of working ever since supporting people who've been affected by the arena attack. And the, I suppose the work that we're doing now that we're talking about today in terms of supporting nurses, other healthcare staff and social care staff yeah. who've been working through the pandemic, we've kind of built on what we offered really to people and families and professionals who've been um, affected by the arena attack. So I can tell you a bit more about what we've been doing to support people with the arena attack. Yeah, I mean, I think coming from Manchester, it affected so many people, didn't it? It wasn't just, there isn't anybody in Manchester that doesn't know somebody or wasn't affected. I, I personally remember waking my daughter up to ask her if she knew anybody that had been at the yeah. concert. And just doing yeah. that was awful. So it affected so many people. And I've heard such positive things just from the community about how easy to access the Resilience Hub is and how... Yeah. You don't have to fill tick boxes in and reach yeah. criteria. So you've done such an amazing job. Oh, it's, thanks, it's great thanks, from a thanks, community Claire. perspective. And I think that is what's really different about the resilience. I mean, normally to get into mental health services, you've either got to reach a certain level of complexity or for some services, for IAP services, you mustn't reach a certain level <laughs> of complexity. You know, you've, you've got to, to either kind of tick a box or not tick a box. And with the service that we've set up for people affected by the arena attack is for anybody who's been affected. So you can have been there on the night or it could be that you had one of your friends or family was impacted by it. You could be a professional who was there. You could be someone who was working in the council who was supporting people. It didn't really matter. We were open for everybody. You didn't have to sort of jump over a particular threshold to get that. And I think you're also really right, Claire, about how people have been affected. I mean, I'm, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not originally from Manchester. I'm from the <laughs> South. And I think I've lived here for 25 years. And I think it was only the arena attack that made me realise that actually Manchester's my adopted home. There was something about the attack on our city and this thing happening on our premises that made people really want to try and do something different. Yeah, so it's absolutely. Been, it's been, it's been, I'm, been, I'm the same. I'm not a Mancunian, but I feel that I love Manchester campaign and the B and all of that. Yeah. We've just all come together and it's either your home or your adopted home. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just think Manchester's like that as a city, clearly from my accent, I'm Glaswegian. <laughs> but I just remember <laughs> when that terrible, terrible atrocity happened and the fact so many of her fans were young children and so many of the people mm. that tragically died were young children. I think it it struck a chord tragically yeah. with just so many people. And Manchester is very similar to Glasgow. It's that kind of city that has people at its heart. So I, I, as a yeah. human, as a nurse, it was and something that really yeah. resonated with me too. Are you aware this Resilience Hub sounds like an amazing model? Is there similar sort of things across the rest of the UK, Claire, that you're aware of? Or are you unique in Manchester with this model? Well, certainly when the arena attack happened, it was unique. I mean, we built on the work that had been done after the attack on the London Transport 
the bombings that happened then, 7-7. So we kind of built on that and the Tunisia beach attacks as well, who all had an element of this kind of outreach because what we did was we actually managed to get hold of the email addresses of people who'd bought tickets because most people who go to a concert these days, they buy tickets online. So we got the email addresses so we could actually proactively reach out to people and say, look, we understand you might have been there. It's an enormous emotional shock. How are you doing? Here are our contact details. Give us a ring. Give us an email. The hub, we've been supporting people who live all over England, all over the UK, and some people who were here on holiday and went to a concert. So it's that kind of reach that I think that feels particularly special about the work that we've been doing. And we've then built on that with other work that we're now doing through COVID. So how have you done that? How have you extended what was set up for the Ariana Grande concert and the bombing to extend that into COVID-19? So we were asked by the Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership uh, because we'd already got this kind of model of working as a family approach it's psychologically led and it's an outreach model. So we had that. So we were a kind of natural start for that, which we'll probably come on to. But you're right, Craig, at the time, I think we were unique. But building on that, there are now hubs that are being developed across England through NHS England, looking at supporting health and social care through the pandemic. I mean, I'll leave Vicky to talk a bit more about what we've then been offering. So, you know, what we've kind of built on from that. Because yeah. we are still supporting people affected by the arena. But yeah. Put this- mm. yeah. I mean, whilst we work perhaps with NHS England, there is a hub in Scotland. No, I, in yeah, Richard. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the model is there's a need out there for Absolutely. our service. Frontline staff and their families and not NHS and care staff that aren't necessarily patient-facing have all been impacted, as has everybody, by the pandemic. But they need as much support as they can get. Life still happens and the stresses of day-to-day life still happens. So as Claire talked about how the model was designed to be as easily accessible and obviously focused, its foundations, if you like, are rooted in recognising the trauma that can result and being trauma responsive. We're here for staff support, every aspect of life that impacts us. It doesn't necessarily have to be COVID pandemic related. So so we've done similar, we've got various different offers. So again, we've got the same kind of screening that we've offered to people affected by the arena attack. So people go online and they can fill in some validated questionnaires, the same sort of questionnaires that IAP services use. They fill them in, they get scored by the computer in an algorithm, and then everyone gets some kind of contact. They get an automated reply back, access to lots of self-help information, and then also outreach from the clinical members of staff who are in our team. And then we can support people to access support local to where they live. We can help people get into the right kind of therapy if that's what they need. We do quite a lot of psychoeducational work. Vicky does lots of it on the phone, helping people understand and just validating some of the really difficult experiences that nurses and other healthcare professionals are having. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk to people because Craig and I are on the RCN Newlywed Nurse Network and we have 15 curators. And even just amongst that 15 people, we talk Craig's been on a COVID ward. 
with Brendan ITU ward and some of the things sometimes they just need to phone up and cry down the phone and it's heartbreaking but I suppose there must be some main issues that staff are phoning with or contacting you with what are the main things that people are worrying about or calling about and what are you able to give them advice and support? Well, I guess in terms of the evidence, and we love a bit of evidence-based practice. Yes, um, we do. uh, (laughs) So in terms of the screening that people complete, we know that 75% of people who are coming through to our service are meeting the treatment thresholds that would qualify them for psychological help. So heightened anxiety, issues with low mood, symptoms of trauma. We are seeing quite a lot of that as well. Also, there are other issues. So we're getting staff who perhaps are struggling with the effects of long COVID. Financial issues. I think we recognise that 22% of the calls that we're getting are from people who are in financial difficulties as a result of the situation that we're finding ourselves in. So whilst the nature of the calls can range enormously, because people can call up for support with any problem, we're definitely seeing a high incidence of mental health issues. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, you said that you were supporting families of NHS and social care and healthcare staff. Uh, So what type of support have you found it is that they need? And what's been interesting is we've supported both parents, if you like. So thinking about some of the needs of their own children and young people, but also grandparents as well who are seeing their adult children going into work. You only have to watch the news, don't you, over the last year? And if you're watching it, knowing that one of your loved ones is going into that environment that feels so difficult and stressful, we sometimes we almost worry more about the ones that, that we care for than we do about ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And from the children, I mean, I think I work with children and young people, so that's my focus. But adolescence, I guess, especially as a time, isn't it, when you try and leave your family, don't you? you try and, you know, you <laughs> as a parent, you let your apron strings go out a bit. And Suddenly, the normal sort of going out and experimenting and discovering about your identity or sexuality, all those issues, you're now children for the last year have spent so much more time at home with their family rather than with their friends. And you know, for a lot of people, that isn't the natural course of adolescent development. And also, it's not time that they're going to get back. No, like, that's exactly. a whole generation yeah. where that yeah. time's gone. Yeah. Yeah. And we I don't live know. with four teenagers, I can tell you. It's, <laughs> so it's been tough on them, maybe a bit tough on me, but my daughter turns 18. She's missed out on that whole yeah. college experience, really, and, and what she's going to do next and yeah. things that we now, you know, you look back and you go, oh, when I did that when I was 15 or 16 or 17, and they're going to look back and went, when I sat in the kitchen again with my mom watching yeah. telly. Yeah. And you're, I think you're absolutely right, Craig. You can't get, you know, when you, if you're 13, 14, the pandemic's been going on for a year, you know, that's the 13th of your life, isn't it? Yeah. And I think we will eventually look back in this period in modern history as being like World War II and the Blitz. And when we had that blackout period, there has never been such a period in modern history where we've quite literally locked down and people mm. have not been allowed out their houses or to experience life as we know it. I've got a, a two-year-old niece and I have, because I work in a COVID ward, I've not seen her 
No. I, I've not seen her really since she was six months old. Mm. And I'm a first time uncle and that's been yeah. quite heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the difference between a six month old and a two year old, you're not going to get that, you know, that time is that it's a loss, isn't it? And I think then for some children and young people, they're seeing their parents go out into what used to feel quite a safe environment. I'd imagine going into a hospital or a ward to work, whereas instead you're seeing people going in dressed up in all sorts of gear yeah. on the television and that's your parents going in and I think that there's lots of of worries that children have now got about their parents in a way that they probably you know we yeah. hope our children don't worry about us it's our job as parents to worry about them and it's kind Definitely. of around a bit we've got a friend who in the first lockdown she's a single parent of three children they lived with their dad then and she moved out for yeah. four months or something and that's just it had the massive and, you know it was so hard for her and for them and she's not alone in that she's not mm. the only person that did that it must be so tough for them mm. I think there's also something of teenagers as well isn't it that teenagers feel invincible don't they you know they, they feel they can go out and do what they want and suddenly they're growing up in a world where actually the danger is germs that you can't see and I think yeah. that's a I do wonder as a psychologist what impact that's going to have on things like the development of obsessive compulsive disorder difficulties. And that reality of mortality, when we could go and see my parents only live around the corner from us, that when we were allowed to see them in the sort of middle bit around the summer, which in, in Greater Manchester was a very, very short period of time, wasn't it? My eldest daughter said, I don't, I don't want to go and see granny and granddad. Yeah. I just, if they got ill, I'd never forgive myself. Yeah. And taking that worry on at 16, 17, we never did that. Going around to granny and granddad's meant cake and a fiver. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so our, our thinking is, if we support the families of the frontline workers, the nurses, that that massively improves the situation for them. And obviously, you know, improves the situation for the whole family. Yeah, because I imagine if they also feel like they are getting that service where their family members have been heard by you guys, that takes some of the pressure and that worry off of the individual healthcare worker because they know that you're helping to look after them. So I think you're doing remarkable work because I... I'm quite alone in my work that a lot of the nurses that I work with are parents who are all worried about their children. So knowing that there's a service like that out there that their families can speak to and maybe helps abate some of their worry, I think can only be a positive thing. Definitely. So I suppose thinking about those things for family members and for staff, are there any particular wellbeing tips either of you would give to people? I suppose my first tip would be that I think, well, certainly from the nurses that I've worked with and that are my friends, I think nurses are, and you know, healthcare professionals are pretty good at checking in on each other. You know, how are you doing? How are you? And I think one of the best well-being tips that I can give is if your colleague asks you how you are, have a proper think about it. And even if you don't want to say to her, have a, you know, it's an opportunity to really check in. You know, someone's noticing you, maybe you're not okay. And to try and use those opportunities when people are, because it's quite easy to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, whereas actually inside you're not. So using opportunities, I guess. So when people check in and ask you how you are is to try and either give them or think, okay, this is maybe it isn't with them that I say how I am, but with somebody, speak to somebody that you trust about how you're doing. We always say that, find your people. Find your people, Yeah. yeah. I think that's also so true that, 
it's a human response. People you pass in the street, oh, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> but people, no one really actually answers that question mm-hmm. truthfully because either A, they think the other person doesn't want to hear or B, it's just a social norm to ask that question. But I think you're so right, Claire, that even if it, you don't respond to that person, that trigger and make you think and reflect about whether or not you are okay and who is that person you can then go to. Because I certainly know that something that I did, not wrong because I didn't know any better because I was a new registrant at the time, but I tried to take on so much that six months into my job, I really wasn't okay. And people kept asking me if I was okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Meanwhile, I'm crying on the phone to my Claire or to my mum, who's a nurse, or just coming home and watching sad films and crying. (laughs) So if I'd followed that advice, which you've given, I think that would have really helped. And it's something that I did eventually do, but I should have done it sooner. And Vicky, do you have any advice on wellbeing? I mean, I would echo what Claire said. I think as nurses, and just focusing on nurses for a moment, I think there is a tendency as a profession to be quite stoic, to put other people's needs before our own. It's the nature of the job, if you like. So when we are struggling, it can be difficult to recognise we're struggling. So having that reflection on how we're actually doing is so important. Certainly the nurses I've spoken to have had real issues about needing to have time off sick because they worry about the impact that has on their colleagues. Or they and worry staffing about, levels. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And worry about what other people think about them. You know, they worry about what does that mean if I'm not coping? And like you say, it, it's okay to struggle at times. It's okay to sit back and think about the enormity of what has happened and feel the sadness. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting and it's not one of the questions we've sent, but it is a question that I just fired into the other guests we had on as well. (laughs) And I'm interested to hear what both your perspectives are. So obviously we're dealing with COVID-19 as the major pandemic at the moment. But I think, and I think it's come out through this conversation, that a much longer lasting pandemic is going to be the mental health, not only of those that work in healthcare, but of the general public. And how do you think that that is going to affect us and how we as healthcare professionals can best deal with that and acknowledge that? You're absolutely right, Craig. I mean, our experience from the arena attack is at the beginning, people have a a need for a lot of physical health care because of the injuries that they received. And then, I mean, some people have to carry on having treatment for a long period of time when they've got really significant injuries. But for a lot of people, there's a lot of physical health need and then that tapers off. But we know that the psychological needs are, it's a very, very long tail, if you like. It's an enormous amount of support that people can need for, you know, not everybody, but for many years to come. And also there were particular times, aren't there, like anniversaries, or, for example, for the arena attack bonfire night, that's a particularly difficult time for people who were impacted by the attack. And I think it's the same for the pandemic. Lots of people have had bereavements through this. And yeah. there are going to be times when it is going to be more difficult. Certainly from my substantive post working in a CAM service, we are definitely seeing the difficulties for people in going back to school, re-entering society, causing a lot of distress 
And I think we're anticipating that there is going to be a huge increase in mental health difficulties. I don't know what your view is, Vicky. Do whether you? Yeah, de- definitely, definitely. And just picking up on the the bereavement side of things, the staff who've had to either deal with bereavement in a very, very different way on wards, or and you know, the other side of the coin actually have bereavements themselves, family members that they've lost during the pandemic. It's been hugely impacting for them because some of the restrictions have meant they haven't been able to deliver the care the way that they would like to. For instance, just having to restrict visiting on inpatient units or having to not be with your relatives when they are dying. Yeah, it's an enormous thing. Sorry, just hearing what you're saying, Vicky, it just strikes such a chord because as someone who has been working in that job, I just nothing throughout my nurse training could have prepared me for the amount of death I've seen in this last year. And the bereavement side of it all is something Mm -hmm. that you can't prepare people for that and that is going to now stay with me forever Mm -hmm. and hopefully will shape me into a better nurse and I know I'm not unique there's so many people Mm -hmm. so I don't think I'm special but there's going to be a whole generation of healthcare workers like when I speak to the FY1s the junior doctors that are coming through they just can't believe that this is what we're having to deal with it's been so extraordinary Mm-hmm. That's interesting because one of the other pieces of work that we're doing at the hub is some organised what we call facilitated peer support. So we've gone out and consulted with a, a particular team who may have been a team who were on their knees anyway with staff shortages, or they've had a particular number of bereavements within the staff, the patients they're looking after. And we offer a kind of a space, I guess, for people to support each other, but with someone from the hub there as well, to think about some of the impact of the work that they do in a shared way with the rest of their team. And I think some of those themes coming out from those facilitated peer supports about people having to do things that they never, you don't think when you sign up that that's what you're going to be doing is experiencing as much death. No. And it's been really hard as new registrants because we've just come out of our training fresh and everything you've been taught, particularly as a mental health nurse, but I think in adult nursing as well, your body language is important, the expressions people Mm -hmm. have on their face, your observation skills. And I found myself starting at home on my own, on the phone to patients that I'd never met, had no relationship with. And so all of the things you've prepared yourself for three years isn't the reality. And we don't have a reality to reflect back on and think, oh, it'll go back to how it was or what it was like, because Mm. I started just after lockdown. So I think that facilitated support sounds amazing. (laughs) But we ask everybody, we do ask everybody when they come on for one piece of advice, and it can be related to what you've been talking about or something else from your experience, Vicky, as nursing, but a piece of advice to nurses, big or small, um, life-changing or or just a practical tip. So if you could each give a tip for each of our listeners, that'd be great. I think mine would be, you need to learn to look after yourself so you can look after other people, I think would probably be mine. I think that we can go through you know, and psychologists the same, you go into this job because you want to support other people 
And it's quite easy to get to the end of a really busy day and not do anything for yourself. But I think if you're going to light a candle, light a nice candle, if you're going to have a coffee, drink nice coffee, you know, do things to look after yourself because <laughs> I think it helps you look after others. I love That's that. That's beautiful. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I would echo that. I would reflect on the importance of building a really strong support network around you. Um you are singing from our hymn sheet, Vicky. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> connection is so important and just reflecting on the journey that you go through in nursing from being a student nurse to that steep learning curve of when you qualified to the challenges that you face. I mean, nursing is, is amazing, but it's an extremely emotive profession to go into. So you need to have that support around you, be it friends, family, colleagues. And are either of you on social media? Is there anywhere that any of our listeners could follow you? I'm not. I don't know about Vicky. <laughs> Vicky, are you I'm, sure, on I'm, I'm, showing, I'm showing my age now, Craig. I'm, uh, I need a few lessons from Claire, who was the guru <laughs> of social media in the CMHT. Um, I'm... <laughs> I'm not on social media, but our website, the Greater uh-huh. Manchester Resilience Hub, is easily sourced. There is tons of advice on there. If anybody wants to do the screening, it only takes a few minutes. You don't, although we're delivering a service for Greater Manchester, anybody in the country can access our, our website and look at the webinars, look at the six-minute bite-sized webinars if you haven't got time to sit through a long one. And they're brilliant. They're really good. It's got loads of, I signpost patients to some of the stuff on there now as well. Yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of help guides, things like checking in after a shift, lots of practical tips for people who who are in the field doing the best they can. Thank you both. It's been amazing. It's been good. Good to meet you both. Oh, thank chance you. Chris. To sort of ref, you know, reflect on because you don't do you. Vicky and I don't sit and think about what we're doing. So it's nice to just have a that, have a chance for that's us to what reflect. We found, yeah, we found this. Craig and I didn't start the podcast. We, we had the idea for the podcast before COVID nineteen, but actually, we've reflected on it that we're so lucky that we have this because we get to speak to amazing people but actually we speak to each other and it gives us that chance to reflect on what we're doing and we make the time to do that because we're doing this and that's definitely made a huge difference to me yeah no so really selfishly it's come out of that for us but then from what we've heard back from our listeners is listening to our episodes has really helped them reflect which is what we set out to do to help them through their journeys through nursing as mm-hmm. saccharine as that may sound and I think the work you are doing at the Greater Manchester Hub is fantastic but we do have listeners from all four nations and internationally mm-hmm. so I'm sure if you have a google there will be resilience hubs in your countries so have a look yeah. there. but thank you both so much for thank coming. you pleasure you're welcome it was so amazing to listen to those three guests. I mean, for me particularly, Catherine Gamble is somebody who I aspire to and who inspires me. Um, yeah. But also to hear about Claire and Vicky and the incredible work they're doing. I mentioned how much those of us that live in Greater Manchester, I know it affected a lot of people, but the Arena Attack and the Ariana Grande concert has touched everybody in Greater yeah. Manchester. and. 
and they've been amazing and how they've kind of taken that learning to support all of us is just incredible yeah and what I particularly liked about the service that they are providing is not only is helping those that work in healthcare but the family members because so many of us I'm not a parent so I can't speak to that but I have seen colleagues who are so worried about their family members so to know that they have somewhere to turn to I think is great and I think what came across in both the interview with Catherine and with Claire and Vicky was just how long lasting this is going to be obviously COVID-19 is a huge pandemic we've been dealing with both of us were new registrants during it and I think something that I said right at the very beginning both of us I think in a sense are going to have to learn how to become new registrants and how to become Mm -hmm. nurses once this has passed and once we start yeah you'll go back to your role in a patient facing way I'm going into a completely new job so we're going to start from scratch and I think that's going to be so similar for a lot of nurses in our situation I know I was in the office the other day and there were actually more than one person in and I realized I'm going to have to get used to working in an office with noise because when I've been in, the office has been the quiet place to go because yeah. homes had lots of people here. I think the other thing for me that came across interestingly in both of the interviews was how all three of them have this passion for mental health services not having this restrictive threshold yeah. whereby you only get services if you tick certain boxes and move forward obviously Kath Gamble talked about locked wards and the mental health act in particular but with Vicky and Claire talking about these people that fall between IAP services which are, are psychological therapies that people can access it's sort of primary care level but then if they're too complex, but maybe not complex enough for secondary care, like the CMHT, and that's not what they're about. They're about people saying, I need help. Uh, actually, I've been affected by the arena attack. Or I've been affected by COVID and I live, you know, in Cumbria or, or Glasgow or, or wherever. And then they just accept them. And it's not how many boxes can you tick? And their website is brilliant. If you do get a chance, I would encourage everybody to go and look because there's some really practical Yeah, and we'll, we'll share the link of the website with this sure. episode. And what I thought was so great that Catherine spoke about, but I think comes across from the service they've been providing at the Manchester Resilience Hub is that co-production of care and how that it's really led by lived experience because there is nothing that will drive services more than lived experience and co-production with the people that actually use it because it's all very well us saying what people need but if we don't actually know then how can you deliver truly person-centered absolutely it came across and the other thing the other really strong message that I think because I think you and I both feel that our guests have said most of what needs to be said on this episode and people don't necessarily need to hear a huge amount from us we've talked about our COVID experiences but I think one of the things that they said all of them and a lot of our guests have said this through series one and series two is about finding your people talking to your people making time for yourself and they all just said that and how more than ever we need to give each other the permission to do that and not just permission but to encourage you know for me to say Craig I've noticed that you're feeling like this I really go for a walk have a cup of tea 
do you want a chat? Let's just do something. You know, let's watch a film at the same time, even if we can't do something together. So I yeah. think that's just got to be the takeaway message for everybody. Yeah. It? And I think the only thing I'd add to that is, well, you can find your peer support network with us. We know with the RCN newly registered nurses network, the 15 curators, we all chat away in our group. I'm sure mm. across the whole country and across the world where people are listening, you've got your support group of friends, but know that there are people in your places of work that you can go to so it might not necessarily be your direct line manager it might be a more experienced nurse it might be a line manager from another ward or another clinical environment but know where the places are you can go or know where these resilience hubs are there will be many different resilience hubs across the country but finding out because that is something I wish I'd done and if I could relive the last year I let myself struggle for way too long and I know loads of us did that so as well as having your peer support network know how to work through the system Absolutely. And we've talked a lot just in other parts of our life this week about clinical supervision and finding a clinical supervisor who can give you that space to reflect outside of your immediate sort of management structure. So it, it all ties in with that, doesn't it? And I, I know there's opportunities. So they talked about it at the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub. There are opportunities in England through the Florence Nightingale Foundation, but in Scotland I'm sure that there will start to be things I think that hopefully that will be one of the learnings from COVID that more and more organisations realise that to keep nurses and other healthcare staff we need to look after them and part of that is that space to reflect and that space to say I'm not okay at the moment this was really tough and I need that space to talk about and that's really so important that we all do that. Because as well as securing safe staff and better pay terms and conditions, we also need to be secure in that clinical supervision, that protected time for continuing professional development. Otherwise, we're just going to hemorrhage nurses and we're just going to hemorrhage healthcare staff and we can't afford to do that because at the end of the day, all that does is cause a disservice to not only our profession, but to the communities we serve and they're the people who suffer. And we all became nurses because we want to make a difference to those people and none of us want to leave nursing. Absolutely not. So rather than listen to us, we hope you've reflected. We hope you've taken the time to think about yourself, the impact it's had on you, your families, your colleagues and your friends. But now go and do something nice for yourself. Take care of you and we'll see you in a fortnight. And if COVID has affected you personally and you have lost anyone always know that there is someone to reach out to and that you are not alone. Thanks for listening. To make sure you stay up to date with our latest podcast, subscribe to Retain the Passion on your usual podcast provider. You can follow us on all the social media channels at PodRTP on Twitter, Facebook.com forward slash PodRTP, or see our website www.PodRTP.com for all our episodes. You can follow Craig at CraigDavidson85 on Twitter, or me, Claire, at Manners of Marple. See you next time. All music from this podcast was courtesy of Kevin McLeod.